Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 69 of the Washed Up Emo Podcast. I am Tom Mullen from WashedUpEmo.com, and today we welcome singer and bass player Michael Fiorentino from the band Somos. Somos have a new album called First Day Back on Hopeless Records, and are one of my favorite bands from this new era of independent punk. Michael and I chatted about growing up in the scene, and also his struggles with mental illness. If you know about Somos or not, I am sure that you're going to enjoy this episode. As always, contact me anytime over at washedupemo.com. This is episode 69 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Michael Fiorentino from Somos. Oh, thank you. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped to be doing this. When um, Emily, I don't know if you talked to Emily yes, at I Bridgeton. Did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I saw the email, I was like, oh, yes, definitely. Let's do that. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Were you were you familiar with it, or were you saw? I probably tweeted at you a bunch, probably. Um, I've seen I've I've seen you on I've seen the Twitter handle, but I've also yeah I guess I've just seen it everywhere, and it seemed I've never listened to a full episode, but um, I guess just from seeing it and just having like that 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 recognition, I was excited. Brad, and then uh, you know, for you growing up in you know the Boston area, were there bands and things that solidified you sort of about the independent scene? Was it? I, I think I'd read that like the hardcore scene was big for you. Yeah, um, I was less into like our guitar still in particular has almost like an encyclopedic knowledge of hardcore bands and all the different tributaries and and subgenres, but I really liked i loved like modern life is war i liked verse a lot i really liked have heart so i would say i didn't i never got too into it as a genre but there were hardcore bands i really loved and got really into you know a few individual bands so that was part of it i think that um yeah i would say that 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 was definitely a part of it i actually grew up and as did phil and justin we grew up in western massachusetts so we were never really out here when hardcore was a big thing but, you know, some of those bands definitely, I think, have an influence. We're actually named after an American Nightmare song. Ah, I should have kn- We Are. 
Oh, I should just almost, yeah. I should have figured that out. Oh, yeah. That kills me. Nice I, job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no worries. I actually didn't know that I until Phil told me, like, that's where he got the idea a while ago. But we had been called that, like, we were a band, and then I found out afterwards. But that's what Phil kind of came up with the idea around, which and, is kind of funny, but... I love that. And then, yeah. you know, for you guys with being Western Mass, uh, were you only seeing local shows were you going to albany were you uh were you driving down to connecticut like what was some of the you know some bands we and were, scenes that you guys were getting into see sometimes i feel kind of like an imposter with this because i even today i just i never really went to that many shows i don't like not not because i don't like seeing live music but i just always was always more comfortable like just kind of like laying back a little bit so i never went to that many shows but so, you know what I mean? Like, I feel kind of phony being like, oh, yeah, like, the DIY scene and this and that. But, you know, we did, uh, you know, those guys went to more shows. But I remember, you know, yeah, we would drive out to bigger shows to see. Like, we saw, like, Bane at the Palladium once. There was also, in Western Mass, there were bands like Ampere, um, bands like Relics that were doing sort of a more, like, angular hardcore thing. Mm-hmm. More like the Amherst area. So, we would go, you know, I would, I saw those types of bands um wasteland was a really amazing uh hardcore band based out of western mass but yeah i don't know i always feel bad answering that question because the truth is i just never really was that plugged into diy personally growing up i I think even that area it's hard i mean i grew up in a small town it's hard to get exposed it's hard to understand the you know connections and i think from that sometimes it's almost better you're sort of mm-hmm. left to your own devices and i think with you um and your writing do you, do you feel like you spent more time playing did you spend more time listening to records at home uh what were some of those sort of things that were uh when you were learning instruments and bands what were was that was that big yeah i definitely spent um i played upright bass in high school um, you know, I, I used to practice a lot with that. I, I think that, like you mentioned, our first record was more, more of like a pop structure and more hook driven or more chorus driven. And I think that, I think that is just a function of me not listening to a lot of like really aggressive music where that wasn't the case. Like I just grew you know, I, like when I was in high school, the thing I listened to most was probably like. I loved like Leonard Cohen. I liked Bob Dylan. Um, through my dad, I got really into Bob Dylan. And then I'm trying to think. So I'm, now I'm, I don't know why I'm blanking out now that I'm on the phone. But Dude, I just never always liked happens. a lot of like. Just like I, I had more like like boring straight lace taste, I guess, in music. You know what I mean? So I never got. So maybe that, maybe that kind of molded me into someone who writes more like traditionally with like the chorus stuff that you that you would pick that you mentioned but then i mean for you dylan and obviously leonard you know l- lyrics were huge and for me on on uh when i was making music like lyrics were kind of last i kind of wanted the riff and i think that's mm. just the, my brain maybe is not as big but i think the right. i think the lyric part for you is really important um and mm-hmm. did, did you get that from those songwriters and what you know d- is that something that you spend um obviously singing you do but you know, you're, you're kind of taking it a different way. Definitely. Yeah. I think I latched onto it. Oh, another, another huge lyricist for me 
when I was really young, when I was like 12 or 13, was Joe Biafra. I used to like, ah. I was so blown away that that band existed. So I used to like study their, I'd buy the CD and like study the lyrics. And I think I just developed a love for that through some of those more like iconic punk bands, like the Clash of the Dead Kennedys, who had like that message and was very aggressive and sort of in your face. And that really grabbed me at a young age, I think. Because it's funny, like, our, our guitarist, Phil, he's always like, I don't care, like, what the lyrics are, like, is, like, is the song good, is the melody good, like, that's kind of how he judges music, where I, I'm definitely kind of a lyrics person, even when I listen to it, and I think that, yeah, that probably comes through a little bit with our writing. Um, Which, uh, that, that is a great, like, I am your Phil in your band. If yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> it would be Tom's always just thinking about the riff. But then you're coming in with that. If you both were that other way, it wouldn't work. You know what's funny? Like, we always have this thing where it's like, if we, like, if I write a song and we just do it like how I initially envisioned it, it's kind of boring because I'm just like, all right, here's the chords, here's the melody, <laughs> verse, chorus. And then these guys, it's actually really good the way we work because these guys... Um, Justin and Phil are very creative guitar players and we've, you know, we've always been able to play with a drummer who's also very creative and thinks outside the box, but like I said, I feel like sometimes I'm kind of like, kind of just straight laced with the songwriting and that can be good in terms of like a melodic focus, but I definitely rely on, you know, my bandmates to elevate the actual songs at finished products. I love that. I love that because you're coming in with that structure and you're like, look, I've got this idea. This is how many times I think. And then I'm sure Phil will come in and say, oh, what if we, you know, did this twice and I did this little extra thing and that wasn't something you were thinking of. I think that's kind of you just talking this through people that are in bands that are listening are probably like, uh, you know, that's how practice goes. And I think people wanting to be in bands, that's when it makes sense. That's when it works. Definitely. There's that balance. There's, There's that there's that tension that was when it resolves itself, it really works. But there is that tension because the approaches are just so different. Yeah. Like I, I'm always like, I count differently than um, this one guy I was in a band with. So I would say mm. four and he was thinking eight. So I would always, oh, have weird, to like, yeah. I would always have to be like, uh, and I'm horrible at math. So it'd be like, uh, eight, 16. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I think, yep. <laughs> and then I'm trying to count that high. It just, it just didn't work. Um, totally now when you with so you got a lot of music from your dad was there a record store was it online was it napster like what were some of those ways that you were just when you were in those years of just i'm gonna ingest music um what were some of the ways um there was a local record store i um i never was i never got vinyl um but i would just you know i'd go buy cds a store called platter platypus records in westfield which is the town that I grew up in. So a lot of it, yeah, was just sort of like researching what band is like this and then saving up money and then going there and trying to see if they had the CD or asking the guy to order it. So a lot of it was based around that. Um, Like the first CDs I got or when I started to build my music collection, it was definitely revolved around a record store, which is so weird today because I, I haven't bought, and this, this sounds kind of hypocritical, but I have not bought a piece of music in like, five years i think which I, is kind of, i i know that i know that's bad because i want people to buy our music but i also as like a consumer on the other end of it as a consumer it's just like it's all it's all streaming for me at this point yeah and actually i was going to ask you that because 
the buying experience I think is different than that streaming. And I kind of was looking at some, I've pared down my CDs over the years and I remember uh, they're at my parents' house. I don't have room in New York city for them. And I remember going through them and, and I know every single page of every book mm-hmm. or uh, booklet, or I know I can rattle off who, you know, the thank yous or, or in the thing. And I, there's this point where, I mean, not taking out Somos, but I mean, I was listening to Somos, and I don't have any of your records on vinyl or CD. I have streaming. Right. But then mm-hmm. I don't have that same connection to mm-hmm. the music. And I think for you, you've bought CDs, and now you're streaming. Do you feel that, that there's this less of a connection because we have such a... We can listen to anything we want. Well, I feel like now it's people have much broader... I guess, or people have access to much more, but maybe it's a little bit, it's like a mile wide and an inch deep where like, I rarely will listen to even like an entire album. So it's like, I listen to individual songs or singles from a ton of people, put them in a playlist. But back then when I was, you know, purchasing CDs or, you know, going to the record store, you know, I had less music at my disposal at my fingertips, but I do think I developed probably like a deeper appreciation for it. Like you said, combing through the lyrics you know, just having it as like a as a tangible item. So I definitely think that's the case. That you know, there's pros and cons with 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 each. I think ultimately I'd prefer streaming just because just for the you know the sheer amount of music that you have at your fingertips at any time. But yeah, definitely I think that I probably like devour or I, I don't devour like a record as much as I would have 10 years ago if I went and bought it at the at the store. Like I I, I would say you know with your last record. I would say I wish I knew Lifted from the Current, track 11, mm. just as much as I knew Problem Child. Because right. Problem Child was on a playlist or you had the video. But for, you know, it's almost like I, I loved knowing that I knew track 12 just as much as I knew the first track. Um, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't, yeah. And it makes me think um, sometimes I'm like, should we just be putting out like singles, basically? And then, yeah. you know, at the end of the. Of, of a year or something, you know, putting that into like a, a collection of singles. Like we, we have those conversations sometimes like, is that, but I mean, I guess in our scene, there are, you know, vinyl still big thing and people are really still into albums, but it definitely seems like the single approach might guarantee that each song gets more, you know, gets more appreciation. And that's, that's something I think about sometimes. Well, to that, I also think about your life cycle. It's not like you guys are off. You have to keep updating socials. You have to keep, you know, there's always something going on with merch or it's almost like you guys are never off. So having right. a record come out and then having all this sort of downtime, but if you have seven inches or splits, which you guys have done with Sorority Noise and Have Mercy, those are sort mm-hmm. of like extra little tent poles throughout the year that it's people are talking about Somos. Right, right. Yeah, I think I I think I might like that more than like really having to think through like okay we have to have this heavy record I think it's it's almost more fun and a little bit it's just like a little more like lighthearted to be like okay let's put a song out or let's let's focus on this and release this yeah and you can do it do you don't you just need yeah. an album cover right exactly exactly um, well it looks like we figured out the marketing plan for 2016 for Somos so I'm glad we figured that out. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, actually, it's funny. We actually do. We're gonna put out like a digital only single in like early September. I'm pretty sure. Oh, cool. We might do like a limited cassette thing, but we're gonna we are gonna try to take that route and you know see how it turns out. I love that. 
Um, yeah. Well, switching gears just because, you know, the name of the, the podcast and, um, uh, you know, what is your thoughts about emo? And I mean, again, as I said earlier, you would have fit back in the 90s. You would have been there mm-hmm. right with a hardcore band, uh, you know, like Split Lip or Texas is the Reason. You would have been right there within those shows. It, wouldn't been, it would not have been out of place. But being lumped mm-hmm. into it, um, even if it was through Chinese Engines or just, you know, tour partners or whatever, how, how did you guys feel about that? And is it something that is even on your mind? Mm-hmm. I mean, it definitely obviously is a term that, still has sort of a stigma for a lot of people, but I don't, it never, it doesn't bother me just because any, I mean, any genre is going to have good and bad music, you know, quality and then stuff that's just garbage. So this is one of the things where we're even with, even with the email discussion, like I know the big legends, like I know the American footballs, but I'm not as up on like the nineties world. Mm-hmm. And I know there's like a very interesting and creative tradition that that's a part of, but when it comes to getting labeled emo today, I know that like what's referred to as like the emo revival, it's referring to this, you know, wave of music at the grassroots level that, you know, bands are trying different things and it's interesting and it's, it's very different from like the, the form of emo that was like, you know, topping the charts a decade ago. So in that sense, I think it's cool. There's been a lot of like, you know, a lot of like people have written about it. Um, interesting people have had interesting things to say about it from a variety of angles. So from that vantage point, it's cool. I guess sometimes I'm bummed when it gets slapped on us only because I know other people don't know that history. They just assume it means something, which it doesn't. So yeah, I don't think about it too much, but yeah, I I really, we wouldn't get called that. It would just be like rock music. Yeah, in and some form, you know what I mean. 100%. And that sort of thing where you're you're totally right where you meet someone and they you say emo and they're like, "Oh, cool. Yeah, I hear I hear 90s or I hear right. um, you know, I I hear Texas is the reason in in your music or I hear, you know, something else, but then another person right. you say that to and they're going to be like, "Well, you don't sound like that band from the mid 2000s." Yeah, they think like swooped hair. Yeah, they think it's kind of like this cheesy thing, but yeah, yeah, which is which so, is which is why I have the podcast and the website, and hopefully people learn totally. the entire history. Because that's the thing I've when I do the DJ night that I've been doing for five years, or doing mm-hmm. any sort of education. It's more of if there's someone that thinks that that's what that is, I try and tell them about the old and the new, and say right. there's things before it and after it. It did not just land in this four year period or five year period and then poof go away. Uh, right. That's the part that I think is really frustrating sometimes because. It's just, well, that's what it sounds like. And I'm cool with people loving that. And if they were 15 during that time and it was really important, I get that. But Mm. there's a history to it. And if you use that word, it doesn't just mean, you know, the mid-2000s. I think you guys probably went into that where where you're getting lumped into certain sounds because of that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, Which can be frustrating at times, but it's not like it's this big, you know, like imposing challenge for our band or anything like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And how, how's everything going on? Hopeless. I love those guys over there, Tobin, and all those dudes are just you know music music geeks. Uh, it's, I mean it's it's going well. Um, they it's funny they reached out to us like right when Temple of Plenty came out. Basically, like on the the month after it came out, we were on our first tour that was longer than a weekend. So they reached out early. Um, you know, other people we were talking to some other labels too, but we one of them just because. 
they bring a lot of like good resources to the table, and like you said, the staff's just very smart. They're very like driven. So I have no complaints with Hopeless. Like it's been it's been really good so far. Great, and yeah. I think too the scene today, and I think you know, are there thoughts about it that you're sort of um, you know happy about or not happy about um, with what's happening right now? You mean just like the like when you say scene, you just mean like the, the whole com- thing, like every. I think just the community that you're in right now, that you were the bandmates or the touring or uh, things that you know that you're mentioned next to. This is the group of bands that you're sort of around. Yeah, I think that. Well, I think that it's definitely. A, I think it's like definitely at least in our little corner of it, it's very healthy. Like, there's a lot of very. There's bands that are taking like interesting chances. Like I like bands that are just writing great pop records. I think without a lot of, you know, I don't know. Like I think of like a band like The Hotelier or bands like Modern Baseball. They're just good bands writing good records, and you know they're getting recognized. And we kind of get lumped into that little subgenre of like this scene, I guess. And I'm uh, I'm happy about that. I think that. You know, obviously, within, like, the broader, like, everything that gets covered in alternative press scene, there's other issues, but in terms of our little corner of it, I think that there's a lot of bands that are doing good work and breaking some interesting ground, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I would say that, I guess. When I came here, it was a feeding frenzy. And then I think too, I mean, Cam from Sorority Noise has talked about mental illness. I know a lot of others have kind of brought it up and, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, things people deal with these things and I love that people are talking about them because they're important. There's, there's a, you know, couple things about, you know, one more dig on the mid two thousands. Again, I apologize. People can roll their eyes, but this whole thing of like glorifying cutting or glorifying this sort of, I'm sad. And that really mm-hmm. kind of bums me out because the music is not sad. It is inspiring. It is, it is hopeful. It is something like it's a an experience, and that's what I try to get across to people. That when people say that, that is detriment to what the sound was. It doesn't mean any of those things, and um, I think that goes in hand with that mental illness of things that you need to be open and talking about it and mention. Um, and I think you know you had said or in previous that there's some things that you know have have troubled you, and I think music is what a great way to confide with someone in a band or a fan about that same experience and you know what did you learn from it or some struggles that you've had with it as well a lot of people um i think can relate to it um which has been interesting like having conversations with people that come up to us or come up to me at shows um i think it touched a nerve um which is i'm i'm happy about that and that the intent was just to sort of explain at the time the intent was just to sort of explain why we were dropping the tour, but you know, a lot of people reached out and were very kind. And then, like I said, on the road, people will come up and say, like, I really related to that. And I'm glad to be part of it. Cause there is a conversation happening in our music community that I think is reducing the stigma. And then sometimes I get frustrated because then it ends up becoming only about just a conversation or 
just just like losing the stigma when I feel like we have to get to the point where we're advocating for things that will actually help people in a more material and concrete way. Like we need, basically it's like we need free and high quality mental health care for everybody. And that's just not the case. So I, I'm very much in favor of conversation. I'm very much in favor of reducing the stigma, but I think it's just a step. It's just like one important step because um, there's big structural changes, I think, in our society to really address it. You know what I mean? Outside of, outside of anything specific to lyrics within our genre or even music or touring musicians, like it's this huge national epidemic that you know, people don't, cannot always afford treatment to get it fixed. Obviously, a lot of people just don't have those resources. So, or, to me, that is frustrating. Yeah, or it's 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 seen as not something that should be treated, or something that you can just kind of forget about and wake up the next morning and be okay. Um, yeah, or people treat it with people self medicate. I mean, the living standard is declining in the, in the United States, and I think that you know, these things are related. So I definitely think, yeah, you have to drop the stigma. People have to feel like it's a genuine thing that deserves treatment totally. And, you know, for people that might not know, I mean, you did have to, you know, drop off some dates. I mean, what were some things that you were going through and, you know, what's sort of helped you get through that? I mean, I was just going through sort of textbook anxiety and depression, like not really being too functional, having a lot of social anxiety, just was not a, did not feel healthy enough to go on tour. Like, go on, because it's kind of demanding. Like, you're in a new spot every night. You're interacting with a lot of people. So, made that call, um, took some time, figured some things out, and then she started to feel better. And then, you know, made the call that we could do it. We could start touring again several months after that. But I think it was the right call to make just because we just, I, I personally was just not in a position to tour. So I would do it the same way all over again. And, yeah, I I feel like almost like a different person after that because I hadn't really attempted to deal with it in any serious way, even though I struggled with it, you know, a lot through my life. So now that I, once I sort of grabbed the bull by the horns or whatever, I feel much better about it. What were, um, did you, did you have a therapist and a psychiatrist? Was it both or was there, you know, was it kind of a balance? Like, I got on medicine, yep, which is work, I think. So, uh, I saw somebody briefly that kind of helped me get on to the medicine. I, I didn't get as much out of that end of it, but I think just the, the experience of acknowledging it, um, getting some of the reinforcement from people when you made the announcement, and then getting on a, uh, like a regimen that worked in terms of the medicine was kind of a, the combination that was really helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, I speaking personally for two seconds, I had some of the same issues, uh, at a years, years ago, and it was the same thing. It was this balance of speaking to someone, but then also having the certain, uh, treatment that fit and, you know, what dosage and those, those types of things. And some of these right. things, and I think for people to listen, some of these things are temporary. Some of these things could just be, uh, you know, you need to get on the a month thing, and then you're you're good. Or some of them are more long term. And right. uh, for you, you know, you were you were able to figure it out and get on a system, and and now it's like you're okay and you're level almost. Um, and that's yeah. not to mean that doesn't mean you're stone. That doesn't mean you're you're out of it. It's that you're at this level position where you're able to function. Correct. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
being yeah. functional was a goal at that point, and yeah. I, it, it feels good to have achieved it. Because everything, it's, it is a, that feeling of not wanting to get up those simple things that you don't want to do, or when you mm-hmm. have to do something, you kind of freeze up. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. No, uh, it's definitely, it's a real, it's a, you know, it, it's a painful thing to go through, so definitely. Yeah, well, I think uh, definitely for you guys to be able to, and you personally, to be able to say that out loud and be able to meet, I'm sure people come up to you all the time now. Yeah, definitely. Um, on tour, if, uh, people come up and we'll, we'll bring it up, which I'm always, I'm always glad to have that conversation. Did you, can, I mean, that's something big. I think those people are going to remember that. I hope so. Yeah, I think so. Um, I guess I, yeah, I would hope so. I, I imagine that they would just because if they're, if they're fans of the band and then they can have that extra connection, it's something that hopefully will get driven home in that extra way. So yeah, yeah, that makes, on that level, I'm, I'm happy about that. Yeah. I think that's, that. that's, again, you're kind of passing on that same knowledge that someone else gave you, um, that right. you hope, but I, you kind of talking back about, or talking a little bit late, uh, earlier about that sort of like more than just saying it more than having a song more than, that it's like the I always always joked about the hardcore show. You know, they'd always talk about like equal rights, and you know, it was just it would be like, well, you're just saying that in between songs, um, like what's yeah. happening after. And yes, some bands right. did and some bands don't, but just that overall, there's like this sort of you say something and there's no weight to it. Like everyone can change their avatar on Facebook for whatever reason, but does that do anything? Mm-hmm. Right. I don't, I don't know if it does. Right. I mean, I guess it can it can serve as a like a precondition for people to go into activity around any sort of issue or set of demands, just because it can change people's consciousness, I guess, or it can change the way people think about something or make them more open to advocacy around anything. But ultimately, you're right; you have to have movements, you know, real grassroots movements that you know are based in the streets that mobilize people that's ultimately the way that you're going to affect change in any, whatever the issue is, that's going to be the way that it's accomplished. So yeah, you, it has to be, it has to be the advocacy talking about it, but also there has to be a focus on really building at the grassroots level as well. Which I find doesn't happen. Um, sadly, these happens. There's like a cycle, you know, everyone gets stoked or not stoked, but everyone talks about it. Everyone, you know, gets outraged. There's things, there's benefits, there's, uh, whatever it is for whatever that situation is. And then two weeks later, the next cat video or the next baby photo pops up and it's gone. Sure. Yeah, that can be frustrating. Definitely. Yeah. It frustrates me. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about uh, the video for Problem Child. Um, if, <laughs> if people haven't seen it or I want people to, but tell, tell everyone about it. Um, it's basically shot at the house where Justin and I, Justin's our guitarist, we live here. Um, we, we wanted a music video for the song because we think it's one of the stronger songs on the record. It's actually personally one of my favorite songs we've ever written, but we wanted to do a video. We thought, why don't we try to just do it at our, at our house? You know, we might be able to get more comfortable. We worked with our friend, Eric Rojas, who's a really good director. And, you know, it's kind of got this cool black and white feel to it but it's also like there's like this it's in it's most of it's in slow motion and i think it works really well um and i think we were just able to get more comfortable because we did it in our own house it wasn't like this 
you know, on set or we went to some crazy location. We just sort of rolled with it and, you know, had our friend, had our friend shoot it. So I think I, it's my favorite video that we, that we've done for sure. Rad. I love yeah. it. And so what is next? You mentioned the, uh, thing in September, but, uh, what's next for touring? What's next for you guys? Or is there a little break or what's, what's we have up? right now, we're just right now we're writing. Um, we are, like I said, we're going to release a single, maybe a small cassette where we'll be announcing a headline tour soon. Um, like a full, our first full U S headline tour. So we're writing a lot. We're putting that together. We're playing, um, we're just playing a women's prison at the end of August. I'm really excited to do that. That'll be a new experience. So there's some interesting things coming down the pipeline for us, but right now we're just, I'd say the big focus is on just accumulating material and, and writing songs. Rad. Is there anything yeah. else you want to tell anybody or tell, tell the uh, listeners? Um, I can't, other than just like, if you have made it this far, thank you for listening. I guess that, <laughs> that, that comes to mind. That is a great, that is actually, no one's ever done that. So fantastic yeah. job. Cause I, you're totally right. If you've made it this far, Michael and I appreciate that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, those are all the questions I had. Um, awesome. thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. Washed up emo fans, thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also reprinted volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com